I had my first ever experience with Lisey Harrison's The Click series back in 2019 when I read book one for episode 76 of the show. A year and a half later, I read the second installment, Best Friends for Never, for episode 142. Fast forward to right now, and it's time to get into book number three, Revenge of the Wannabes. If you're not familiar with The Click, or if you haven't listened to those episodes in a while or ever, don't worry. What you need to know is this. This extremely popular series from the early aughts follows a group of middle schoolers who call themselves The Pretty Committee. Set in the wealthy suburbs of New York City, the books detail the dramas and complex dynamics of Alicia, Dylan, Kristen, New Girl Claire, and, of course, Queen Bee Massey Block. Revenge of the Wannabes focuses largely on the power struggle between Massey and Alicia, who is tired, she says, of being Massey's beta. Alicia attempts to assemble a copycat pretty committee and to gain social capital at school by appearing in a hot teen magazine. Meanwhile, Massey deals privately with the emotions she is often reluctant to share with others namely insecurity, loneliness, and fear. My guest today has a lot of thoughtful insights about the click, and I can't wait for you to hear them. The series played an important role in her young years, and she now calls herself a true defender of it. While we do chat in this episode about the icky moments of sexualization and objectification that pop up in Revenge of the Wannabes, we also look closely at Lisey Harrison's work as social commentary. We do talk about disordered eating and body insecurity, so please take care if this kind of content will be triggering for you. Now, meet my guest. Iman Hariri-Kia is a writer, editor, and author born and raised in New York City. A 2017 recipient of the Annabelle Bonner Medal and a nationally acclaimed journalist, she covers sex, relationships, identity, and adolescence. Iman's work has appeared in Vogue, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, Nylon, Bustle, and more. Her debut novel, A Hundred Other Girls, was named Barnes & Noble's August Fiction Pick, as well as one of the best books of the summer of 2022 by Good Morning America, USA Today, The New York Post, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, and more. Apple Books dubbed Iman one of its writers to watch in 2022. You can often find her writing about her personal life on the internet, much to her parents' dismay. You can find Iman at Iman Haririkia on Instagram and TikTok and at ImanHaririkia.com. As you'll hear very shortly, I am extremely interested in becoming Iman's friend, and I have no doubt that you will feel the same after listening to this episode, following her, and reading her work. I do believe that online friends are a real thing, and you can definitely make them in the SSR family. The Patreon community has already grown quite a bit in this new year, and we would love to welcome you too. Patrons contribute as little as $1 per month in exchange for a range of exclusive SSR benefits. So much bonding happens in our Discord channel and book club meetings, and you'll get lots of inside scoop from newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, guest Q&As, and more. You can still join us for our January book club. We are reading Silver Sparrow by Tayari Jones. Get more information and sign up at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you are loving the work I do on SSR but aren't quite ready to join Patreon, 
The best way to support the show is to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or to share it on social media. Take a screenshot of this episode, post it to your Instagram story, and tag me at SSRPod. I'll share it. We are also on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I'll see you there. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And use code SSRPodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you get from the big guys. I'm listening to Prince Harry's Spare on Libro.fm at the moment, and I am loving it so far. Go treat yourself to a great listen. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Welcome to SSR. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So listeners, we have already been talking for like 15 minutes about our lives and writing and social media and Mormon mommy TikTok. I actually just offered Iman an official proposal to be my friend. So this is a really big day for me. And she, she did accept. I think I should specify that. And we're really excited to welcome you into this moment for us. Guys, so much happened off screen. It's my fault. I just was so excited that the second I saw the camera flashing, I dove in. But now we're going to like welcome you into the fold and it's going to be, you know, a really big friend group. Yes, it's <laughs> going to be cozy. It's going to be fun. And it's going to be very unlike the pretty committee, which is a very terrifying <laughs> place to find yourself if you are in search of friends. Today we are talking about the third book in the Click series, which is called Revenge of the Wannabes. And Iman has already informed me that she has done an incredible amount of prep work for this episode. And if I'm not mistaken, you told me when we first started chatting about having you on that you did read the Click books when you were a teenager. I think I am a few years older than you are, so it kind of missed me. So I have come to this series for the first time as a podcaster. And over the years, we have covered book one, book two, and now, of course, book three. But I am kind of just curious to like see what you have to say about the series as a whole, what you remember about it from your own teen years, and what inspired you to come back to it in such an aggressive way, really, because you've you've shared some things with me about how you're just, you're back in. 100%. I was telling you off screen or off recording, off mic, that after realizing that we we're going to be discussing Revenge of the Wannabes, I went and reread The Click, which is the first book, and Best Friends for Never, which is the second. And I felt so passionately about my reread that I immediately 
invested in a full box set order that should be arriving any day. So not only am I about to become a click collector, by the new year, I'm probably going to be the click historian as well. Congrats. <laughs> Throwing new titles under my belt. But I really have to say that the click was formative for me. I discovered the series when I was in middle school. So not I wouldn't necessarily call this like my teenage years series, but it was my pre-teenage years series. But what's special about that, or maybe not special, but interesting at the very least, is that I was reading these books when I was the same age as the characters are. Um, the characters are seventh graders, so ages 12, 13, and you kind of watch them as they navigate a lot of complicated adult topics that I didn't realize were such subtle social commentary until I had enough distance to go back and look at it through like a cultural lens. So obviously socioeconomics, class, there's a lot about like sexualization, objectification, friendship, love, loyalty. And I really, really was, I would say what I would say, call a click defender because I was not like a cool mean girl in middle school. I was like a very socially awkward, the only Middle Eastern girl in my class trying so hard to blend in with my mainly white homogenous peers and always coming up short because I would never 100% look, act and behave like them. And that was, you know, culturally predetermined. And I really used the click as like a lens through which I could understand the people I was interacting with. And it gave me someone who was not a bully, but bullied sort of like the confidence and the sass to fight back at certain points when I felt like I was being talked down to. And I really think that a lot of people misunderstand this series and misunderstand what I believe Lisey Harrison was trying to do with Massey Box character and sort of cast it aside as like a mean girl series about rich kids in Westchester that teaches young girls to also be mean and also be bullies. I really don't think that. I think that if anything, this this book series inspired me to have more empathy <laughs> and also gave me more confidence as a young kid that didn't really fit into a box culturally and was trying to reconcile what it was like to be me with what it was like to be an American teenager. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. It was so well said, and I'm glad that you are proudly a click defender. So to kind of contextualize how I come at this book, like I said, I didn't read the book when I was a teenager. This particular installment, Revenge of the Wannabes, came out in 2005. I would have been 15, so just missed the mark. Like you said, this really is a book that's more intended for preteens, although when I'm reading it, and you kind of hinted at this because of your reference to like the adult matters that these kids are dealing with. Like I tend to forget when I'm reading a click book that they're not in high school because a lot of the things that they're doing feel very high school-esque to me, which is I think neither a good thing nor a bad thing, but it's just I sometimes have to remind myself while I'm reading like, oh, right, these kids are 12. Because I didn't read these books when I was a teenager or a tweenager, I didn't come into it with any particular judgment 
about it. I, of course, like grew up in the Mean Girls era. And so I pick up on a lot of like the parallels to the plastics when I read about the Pretty Committee. But I think when I've read the other books, the first two books in the series, what I walked away with wasn't a feeling that Lisey Harrison was trying to, as you said, like show off this fancy lifestyle in Westchester and maybe like give kids examples of how they could bully each other. I think I find them a little chaotic just because there's so much happening in them and because I didn't come to the series with a basic understanding of the characters and like the landscape of this community. I just am always like a little overwhelmed by everything that is going on. But I I tend to agree with you because I do think that Lisey Harrison is is trying to show readers this world through Claire's eyes more than she is trying to show readers the world through anybody else's eyes. And Claire is the outsider in the group, at least initially. She is the one who has moved into Massey's family's guest house. She doesn't come from the same amount of privilege as the rest of the girls, although she is white and middle class. And so even though she does, you know, she is different than the other girls at Octavia Country Day OCD, she still has some level of privilege, of course. Like, I think that she is meant to be our our proxy in this situation. So I don't feel really as though Lisey Harrison is glorifying Massey or Alicia's behavior in any way. I sort of feel like she's poking fun at them, especially in this book. Like in this book, both Massey and Alicia, it's absurd the lengths that they are going to to take each other down. You have to laugh at it. And I can only hope that kids who are 12 and 13 can step back and see that. Because as an adult, of course, I read it and I'm like, girls, come on. Like you're really getting out of control. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a total power play. But I, I guess I would, I, you have to trust. And one of my favorite things about good YA middle grade authors is that they respect their young readers. You have to trust that in respecting their readers, these authors understand that those young readers will like see that this isn't meant to be any sort of a manual for like how to be a good person. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you, you talked, it's, you talked about how like chaotic these novels are and rereading these i have to say picking up on the sheer chaos and the amount of cultural references that are made i think it's has to be like 10 per page you really see the subconscious influence lisi harrison's writing style had on me because you've read my debut novel and i really i mean i knew that i was inspired by her writing style and like Meg Cabot's writing style. But going back and rereading this, I was just shocked by how much it reminded me of how I like to write from an adult lens. So it's funny that you mentioned that because it immediately sort of was a light bulb moment for me when I was rereading. You also mentioned the extent to which the preteens in this book act like adults. And I would say, yes, that's true, but not all of them. And I think that very intentional. That's very intentionally done. Alicia and Massey so clearly want to be seen as adults by adults. There are sort of glimpses of their youth and their childhood and the fact that they are so young that come through whenever they aren't on the defense, whenever they are not putting up a guard or they're not performing for their peers and mainly in moments of privacy. So something that really stood out to me in this book was 
Massey's desire for emotional intimacy. And there's a really clear example of this when she's fantasizing about having Cam over to her room and what the end of her fantasy is them ripping apart like the facade of her having a perfect room, this perfect life, and then just laughing together. Just the instance of being able to shed all these layers of protection and just be yourself and laugh. That was so innocent and sweet and so obviously like preteen before like, I don't know, sexual desire and sexual dynamics start to play into how you think about the way that you relate to other people. I thought that that was that that was such a perfect private moment into Massey's mind that shows us like, yes, she's out here like spending thousands of dollars at the mall and ordering people around like she's a 50 year old woman. But all she really wants is to like laugh until she has stitches in her stomach with someone who sees her as she is. Same goes for Alicia. Like I think Alicia, when they're going to the Teen Vogue offices for the first time in this book, and she wants Dean to stay in the car. And for a second, you know, she's talking to him as if she he's on her payroll. He's she's being aggressive. She's ordering Olivia around. And then she hears a cop car. And she thinks to herself, like, I hope that the revolving doors are wide enough that we don't have to separate even for a moment because a kid, like she, she's performing as an adult, but she's a kid. And I think Olivia's role in this book or faux Olivia's role is to show you the juxtaposition between a 12 year old who pretends they're 22 and a 12 year old who owns their like naivete because she's always making stupid like quote unquote stupid commentary but a lot of it a lot of it is just like you know she's totally innocent and doesn't understand how things work and is a little like she's a little she plays her age she plays into being like a clueless little girl and massey and alicia both find it irritating for the same reason they want her to perform the issue with alicia's knockoff pretty committee is that none of them perform the way that the pretty committee performs as adults. They ask questions, they feel things externally and like show when they're hurt and upset and embarrassed. They aren't the perfected versions of themselves that you often see people project as adults. So I thought that that was really interesting. And I picked up on that too. I was like thinking about that so much as I was reading because I, I think there's always like a conversation. Who did Lisey Harrison write this for? Did she write this for kids or did she write this for adults? Like, cause there's so many like allegories in this. And ultimately I think that she wrote this for young people who are constantly having to put on different masks and like code switch between how they behave and just different social settings so that if you read it as a kid, you experience this alongside the different members of the pretty committee. But if you read it as a teenager, as an adult, you're able to read it with nostalgia and perspective and have a completely different experience. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, obviously like I'm speaking so passionately, but I think that's the mark really poignant writing. And now I'm not just a defender. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a the click apologist, but <laughs> yeah, you are an ardent apologist. I would add that adjective. Okay. So I now have so many things that I want to say. So the first thing is that I echo your thoughts about 
the moments of tenderness is the word that I would use that we see with Massey, especially where that kind of drive to be treated like an adult is stripped away. And we see that they're, they are like babies at heart. Like they do have sweet moments. There's one moment that I'm thinking of with Massey and her mom. And her mom is for the most part, this kind of like self-involved, too busy to deal with her daughter kind of character. And her storyline in this book is that she's part of this book club that actually felt very 2022 to me in that they're reading The Power of You and they're like reading all of these different self-help books. And I'm like, these women would totally have a YouTube channel. They would have a TikTok. Yeah, I mean, we know them. Like we know them, we have feelings about them. Um, and, And Massey is kind of constantly in this tension of like wanting her parents' attention and being grateful that she doesn't have a lot of attention from her, from her parents. But there's a scene, I think, toward the end of the book where like her mom kind of lets her guard down for a minute. And you see, like you see the baby in Massey's face where like, I think Kendra, her mom, like scratches her back for a minute or something. And like Massey settles into that in a really sweet way. So there was that moment. And then I did find myself feeling for Massey more in this book, I think, than I have in either of the other books that came before it because we really get a front row seat to Massey's insecurity. As I mentioned earlier, this book really is about a power dynamic between Massey and Alicia. Alicia is tired of being Massey's beta, as she says, and she wants to be the alpha. She's tired of everybody kind of using her to get to Massey. She wants to be the cool girl and she wants to be in charge. But Massey is experiencing that as a loss. So there is this this sort of outside persona that she's putting on where she's competitive of her social position and she doesn't want to give up her social capital. But behind closed doors and in her head, and, and we get a lot of interiority from Massey in this book, we get to see her thinking things like, well, is Alicia having more fun without me? Like, is it better for Alicia now that I'm not around? Like she kind of thought Alicia was eventually going to call and change her mind. And she feels as lonely as I think so many of us remember feeling when we were Massey's age, even though she seems so adult and different. And so I agree with what you're saying that we see a softness in Massey, certainly in this book. And then the other thing that I wanted to say to your point about who Lisey Harrison might have written this book for, I think that Lisey probably knew that it worked on all of these levels. I'm wondering how much this book played differently to tweens who were growing up in different kinds of places. So I grew up in the suburbs, bordering on rural. Like I went to a huge high school and our school got canceled with snow all the time because the roads that some people would have to take to get to school from like the farms they lived on were so windy. So that's my experience. So when I read a book like The Click, and for me, it was Gossip Girl. That was like my Bible in middle school. It was about the brands. It was very escapist for me. It was like hanging my hat on the outfits that they were wearing and learning the language of the magazines that I was trying to read. And it was like reinforcing the things that I was seeing on the OC or on the hills. Like it was sort of helping to cement some of those references that I just didn't have access to in my daily life. I wasn't paying as much attention to like what they were actually doing. I was just kind of lost in the world building of it. I wonder if kids who who had experiences a bit more similar to Massey and Alicia and the gangs, like going to an upper middle class or wealthy kind of day school, private school, living closer to a city like New York, like maybe they're sort of already up on those references and could pick up on the dynamics more than I was capable of when I was a kid. 
Totally. I So I grew up in New York City, so not in Westchester, but I know a lot of people who did grow up in Westchester. And there's a lot to criticize these books about. They're very white. They're very straight, cis. They're not necessarily intersectional reading in any way. I would argue that Westchester County is a lot of those things as well, at least from my perception of the wealthier parts of it. There are, of course, parts of Westchester County that have a lot more diversity, but the stories that I've heard from people that grew up in like Chappaqua, for example, there were often very few people of color in the room. There are very few people from diverse backgrounds in the room. And those people uh, really felt like the, they felt othered, they felt like minorities. And I don't want to speak for someone who I didn't share the experience with, but the firsthand accounts that I've heard from people who grew up in this specific part of Westchester County, I heard a lot about this sort of wealth and very narrow POV of uh, young adulthood. But from what my understanding of Lucy Harrison, I think that she was familiar with this background. I think that she might have lived in Westchester. I I think that's right. I think I I think I read that somewhere too. So I think that what she might have written, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but this might be like an accidentally incredibly escapist novel because it is probably more accurate than most people realize to her experience of Westchester families. But the absurdity of it's brought to certain extremes and it definitely starts to feel satirized. I think that by the third book, she knew that she was writing for this sort of voyeuristic experience for most of America. And she started to play into that. And I mean, the, the extent to which the girls talk back to adults and make them feel belittled by their wealth, I noticed was really extreme in, in this book. But I want to talk a little bit about Massey and what you said about empathizing with Massey and the cracks in Massey's, Massey's demeanor. Like I already talked about that scene about, you know, fantasizing about really like destroying her perfect room that her mother never lets her get creases in the bedspread. At one point her mom's like, can you believe I messed up this bed? She like sat down on it. That ruined the moment I think that I was describing before where like maybe she scratched her back for like a second and then she's like, oh no, like I'm so wild for sitting on your bed. <laughs> but it's funny because I do, I do think that it becomes clear in this book that Massey is mean because being mean gives her a sense of control. She's able to hurt others and have them fear her before they get power over her and hurt her. And that desire for control really comes from this deep-seated core fear of being alone. Like she does not want to be alone for a second. There's like a great scene where she, in this book where she's asking everyone she can think of like what they're doing this weekend and everyone comes up with a different excuse a different plan and at this point she's not talking to Alicia who immediately would have canceled everything to hang out with her and she is makes up a lie about like touching up her highlights and you can see her start her internal monologue she starts to panic she starts to spiral about the fact that no one wants to spend time with her one-on-one -on -one. and you know there's a, a time when she's having that like very surrealist daydream about 
Alicia literally taking her crown from her, her charm bracelet and crushing it under her boot, that she hears someone whisper, talking about someone else, uh, talking about, I think, um, comma D, the announcer who really works like almost like a God level connector in this book. It's pretty yeah. like that girl is such a loser. Like, I can't believe she thinks people actually like her. And Massey immediately is like, what if people think that about me? What if people don't like me? What if, you know, no one actually wants me to be my friend, you know? And what's so interesting about Massey as a character to me and what I think a lot of people like miss from the first book is that Massey is a Claire. The reason that Massey and Claire mirror each other is because Claire admits out loud what Massey wants in private. And the like, if I could ask readers to read one scene in this entire series and it encapsulates the entire like, you know, 20 book book series, it's that scene in the first book when they're having this sleepover and they play Would You Rather, the Would You Rather is, Would You Rather Be a Friendless Loser or Have a Ton of Friends Who Secretly Hate You? And every single girl says, I'd rather be a friendless loser because I wouldn't want to live a lie, like pretending that they would be okay with being completely alone if it meant that they didn't have fake friends, which is so ironic because all these girls compete with each other in their little clique. Claire is the only one who out loud says, I'd rather have a lot of friends that secretly hate me because she's experiencing what it's like to be alone in real time in OCD. And it's paralyzing. She hates it. It's the worst thing she could imagine. Meanwhile, in Massey's head, we see that she also thinks that being alone in OCD is the worst thing she could ever possibly imagine. But she still feeds the lie that all of her friends say and says, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have a ton of friends secretly hate me. And that's like the first kernel of respect you see Massey have for Claire. Because Claire is, is so obviously in real life living Massey's internal panic monologue spiral truth. And that this is like, like I, I can't believe when, when people miss this and say Massey's like the original mean girl at Massey, like there's no like depth and layers to her. She, she just bullies people for bully's sake. This is that, that scene encapsulates everything. This is also why I didn't like the click movie because they reversed that yes. and had everyone do the opposite. And I was like, oh, you guys completely missed the point of these books. Like you, you're feeding into this like mean for mean sake yeah. theory is like, it's not, it's that all these mean girls who are lashing out are the most insecure girls in school. Like they're, it's so, they're babies who are like being shaped by their parents and their environment to feel like if they don't have these cold adult exteriors, they're going to get crushed by the weight of the world. And for each girl, it's a slightly different core fear, but Massey's is being alone and it's internalized and Claire's is externalized, right? Mm -hmm. So that has been clear from day one. And then this book, her worst fear starts to happen. Like Alicia starts to chip away at her control and chip away at her ability to have people follow her. And I think what's so interesting too, is like, you see here that it, that's not an easy task. Like for all that Massey does wrong, there's also a lot that she does right. She is an alpha because she, all of these things, these little quirks that the pretty committee have, they're all Massey's ideas. She is like so clever and smart and creative. Like 
their lingo, all the words they say, her idea, like the abbreviations, the girls like us, the eternal wannabes, the losers beyond repair, the Friday night sleepovers, the would you rather on the car, like all the way that she has of insulting people as a question so that they walk right into the trap and basically insult themselves. Like these, these are all Massey's inventions. And what she can't stand is when people kiss her ass and try to basically copy her. Like when they're, when they're a wannabe, when they're eternal wannabe, when they're, when look the, the title of the book, when they're basically just trying to appeal to her by being like her, you really see in this book that whenever Claire has an original thought, Massey is like, she immediately affirms her, mm-hmm. which is wild. Like, I can't believe I missed stuff like this on my first read. Like when Massey goes into Claire's closet and sees like all those photos of her outfits, on the wall, she's like, I hate everything you're wearing, but this is a genius idea. You're onto something. Or like when Claire, who like doesn't kiss Massey's ass because she doesn't get like the protocol at school and also has seen beneath the cracks of Massey because they live together, punches does like Uggs, no punchbacks, which they usually do Burberry. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's supposed to be Burberry. You're such an idiot. And Massey's like, I like it. And then suddenly everyone thinks it's like the best thing they've ever heard. So you really see that like game respects game here. That it, like, sorry, I feel like I'm on the longest rant of no, all No, please. I'm having the best time listening to you talk about this. But like what's so interesting about Alicia then as a foil yes. for her. Because you're right. This whole novel is like about a power dynamic between two friends. You see that on the surface, Alicia wants what Massey has. Like Alicia wants to be an alpha like Massey, but underneath the surface, you see that that's actually not true. Like what she wants is to be validated by Massey, loved by Massey, accepted, and is treated as an equal by Massey. Like she really doesn't want the pressure of being at the top. And you see as she tries to tries that on for size, she doesn't enjoy it. She can't handle it. She doesn't find as fun as she did in her head. What she really wants is for people to stop comparing her to Massey and for Massey to treat her as an equal and to validate her and to basically be her friend and not her boss. And you really see that in a few places in this book. Like, you know, in the first chapter, Mm -hmm. like in the first chapter of dance class, she immediately is like, I love dance class because Massey doesn't dance. So for an hour every week, I get to be the best person in the class. And you're like, okay. So first of all, she only sees success through the guise of uh, Massey. And the comparison, And then yeah. a minute later, she's like, I dance so well. I wish Massey was here so she could see what a good dancer I am. Like, I wish Massey was here to tell me you did so good because she just wants, she, she just wants that like love and affirmation from the friends she already has. She doesn't want new friends. She wants, she wants them to see that she too is special. And I think that it's, it's interesting because when she becomes a quote unquote alpha, she isn't an alpha by being herself, by being the best dancer, by being, you know, Alicia Rivera. She is an alpha by 
literally copying Massey in every possible way that she can. She steals her style of jokes. She tries to host her own Friday night sleepover. She tries to do her own carpool. She tries to boss people around in the same way and they don't, they don't respond to her. She tries to literally find people that look exactly like her friends and typecast them as members of the pretty committee. And it fails because she doesn't have, what makes Alicia special isn't what makes Massey special. Like Massey is a born leader that comes up with all of these like clever ways of interacting within a community. And Alicia is very independent. And those things that like when she leans into the things that make her, her, she thrives. So at the end, when she gets the announcer job and she, you know, you see her like practicing in her bedroom, pretending she's on television, that's Alicia, like leaning into what makes Alicia, Alicia and Massey thinks that's sick. Like I have the coolest friends. It's only when she tries to like copy her and when she tries to gain respect by doing what Massey does, but better and comes up short that you see, oh my gosh, it's, it's, it really, really starts to crumble for her. And I think it's, it's just so interesting because ultimately you think to yourself, these girls, there's so much that they could, as adults, there's so much they could heal if they like communicated like the adults that they act as, Mm. but they're not kids. Like they can't just have and be done with it their kids with like the funds the spending accounts of adults and the like costumes of adults but they fight like territorial hormonal preteens and it's with with the funds to create hate murals um so oh my gosh it gets it really just like it was all out there for me okay I'm gonna like No, I mean, honestly, like if I ever need a co-host, you're going to be my girl because you are excellent at this. And I love how prepared and passionate you are about this book. So thank you so much for coming with that energy. And I really appreciate your thoughtful analysis of both Massey and Alicia. And what I would add to your comments about Alicia is that something that I picked up on in this book is that you know, we've heard the criticism about this series and others like it, that it it really sexualizes all of the characters. And something that I really became aware of here with Alicia is that at one point, and I do think it might be in that first chapter that you mentioned, one of the things that Alicia is thinking is, I'm so tired of just being Massey's beautiful best friend. So it's not just that she is tired of being Massey's beta. She is very aware of the fact that she is beautiful. And in the first two books in the series, we are made very aware of the fact that Alicia is gorgeous. And it feels weird to me as an adult to even be like talking about a 12-year-old like this, but this is the world that we have inherited in the series, so I'm just going to share it. Alicia is not only beautiful, but there's a lot of commentary about her body and about her breasts and how she has gone through puberty way before her friends and her friends are always commenting on that and it comes up all the time. So you get the sense that like, if each of the girls in the pretty committee is kind of being given like a certain identity, like Alicia is the hot one, if we're gonna be reductive about it. And it seems in this book that Alicia is aware of that. And we see her like wanting, as you said, to be appreciated for the fact that she's a great dancer. And she does this thing that I totally related to something that I did when I was a kid where like she pretends to be a newscaster and she like sits at her desk and like puts on these fake newscasts like she wants to be appreciated for the fact that she's good at all these other things and she's interested in these other things 
and she wants to be seen for something other than the way she looks. And that made me feel for her on a whole other level because that's not an experience that I had as a kid, but it seems like she knows that she's been sexualized. And it was the first time that I felt like that part of the world was was self-aware. I feel like in the other books, we're meant to believe that like the kids don't know that they're being sexualized or noticed in any sort of a sexual way. And I feel here that Alicia does. And there was one moment specifically that I wanted to call out because it really icked me out. It's when they go to the teen people offices I can tell we're on the same page. And I liked a lot of the stuff at Teen People. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this because I was enjoying the fact that there is a lot of magazine content in this book and your book. Also, it takes place largely in the offices of a big magazine. And so the girls are so excited. They're seeing the closet. Your book has a very similar closet where all of like the fun goodies that are sent to the magazine are housed. They're in the closet. And Lucinda, who is the editor that they're working with at Teen People, just assumes that Alicia has implants and makes a comment about like, oh, how much did those cost? And points at her chest. And this is a seventh grader. And I was like, holy shit. And I get that this is, it's a bit of a parody of itself and it's cartoonish in some moments. But that for me was like over the line as a reader. And I don't want to be like prude about it, but that made me feel weird. And then also just putting myself in Alicia's shoes as the character, no wonder she has these insecurities. Like even adults who she has these theoretical like professional relationships with, she can't even trust that adults are going to treat her like an actual person who has interests because they're so quick to make a joke about her body. I'm so glad you brought this up. I touched on this a little bit at the very beginning of our conversation. I think that there are a lot of adult themes that I didn't necessarily pick up on in these books when I was first reading them and on reread really took my breath away. And you know, a lot of people talk about like socioeconomic status, class, generational wealth, old money, new money when discussing these books. But the two topics that I really wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you brought up one of them, is the you know, sexual objectification of young girls and disordered eating and like learned and inherited disordered eating. And I almost feel like Lisey Harrison, again, I don't know this for sure. She picks different girls to represent these sort of like adult struggles through a young adult lens. You know, I'm not going to talk about it in this book because it's less prominent, even though it definitely was an arc that ran through, but Kristen really represents sort of the socioeconomic part of it, but we don't really get as much vulnerability from Kristen on that in this book as much. I mean, a lot of jokes about her. Like, do you need me to buy this for you kind of thing? Yeah, and not wanting to be treated as a charity case, but the, oh my gosh, I felt emotional um, at certain parts reading Alicia and her relationship to her sexuality because she is hyper aware of the fact that she has a large chest because everyone including the adult the adults in her life comment on it and she thinks because she grew into sort of like a woman's body early she needs to weaponize it and act like a woman but in those quiet moments of insecurity you see how much she hates it and it just broke my heart like in the first chapter 
Olivia is saying, you know, like, I wish talking after dance being like, I wish I had your boobs. I wish I had your body. And Alicia quietly is like, I wish I could, I wish I could trade places with anyone else, with anyone up to have a smaller body. Like she is so saddened by it. And then you have people like Lucinda who, oh my gosh, that really upset me. But also like, it felt inappropriate, but realistic. Like I, I read and thought, of, of course, this is how people like this speak because in the end of the day, like Lucinda is pushing a product and that product is going to be Alicia. And she's seeing her as like an ad, a walking ad. But the amount of damage that that comments like those, you can tell she's gotten them from all the parents in her life, maybe even teachers like Chandra, they really impact her. Harrison, not an adult, but a 17 year old boy who makes all of these comments to her, like you're gonna be so hot when you're older. He plays her that song, Barely Legal. It's all really, really gross. And she tries her best to make the most of it. But in her more quiet moments, you see how much if she wishes she could, she could desexualize her body and she wishes she could just have her girlhood back. Like she wishes she's envious of the other pretty committee members who haven't gone through puberty because she wants to be able to experience girlhood in the way that Massey's experiencing it, having crushes without the expectation of, of sex or even kissing. Um, and multiple, multiple times she says, you know, this is something I have over Massey. Massey doesn't talk to boys. Massey doesn't understand boys. Like, I need to make the most of this so that my pretty committee stands out. But then when she's in that situation, she's a deer in the headlights. She doesn't enjoy it. She's making herself go through with it. And I actually think the most poignant moment in the book where this becomes so clear is when she is walking away from Todd, Claire's brother, who she's working with to spy on the pre committee and get gossip. And Todd, who's been showering her with compliments, which she really needed to hear because she's feeling so insecure that she's really enjoying, you know, the attention, says to her, great boots, by the way. And she thinks he says great boobs immediately she starts to cry. And this comment came from like a 12 year old boy, but it's this idea that no matter what age someone is, what role they're playing, how much power she has over them. Because in this, she has the power in a relationship between Todd and her where, you know, she's getting them WME tickets. Same with Harris. I just realized there's a parallel there. She also tries to control him by using her wealth to flaunt her status and her power. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they're just gonna see her as this sexual object, like a walking pair of breasts. And that, like, even though she mishears what he says, that says it all. Like that moment to me painted her so clearly. And again, like that's what really endears me to the pretty committee and like reminds me that the point of these books is not just girls being mean to each other for no reasons. It's that the meanest girls and the wealthiest girls and the most privileged girls in their quietest moments are yearning for, for this type of like connection and love and affirmation outside of their beauty, outside of their bodies, outside of their status. And God, that just like broke my heart. And then the other one I wanted to talk about was 
generational disordered eating and the way that disordered eating is like learned and taught and passed down. And the, and, you know, I think that this book definitely, uh, it's discussion of like calories and calorie counting and sugar-free and diets. Like it definitely, it was published at a time when the rest of like young adult and middle grade literature were also sort of openly discussing disordered eating in a way that can can now, I think, be seen as instructive for young girls. I struggled with disordered eating when I was in high school. And I definitely think that like becoming aware of calorie counting at a young age can be detrimental. So I definitely don't want to glamorize the discussion of disordered eating in these books. But looking back and reading them, I almost feel similarly to the sexual objectification that Lisey Harrison is showing how damaging disordered eating that's sort of taught through adults can be for the psyche of these girls. Dylan is obviously the the character that sort of represents this, even though all of them struggle with it in different ways. But Dylan is like the comment that she is always on a diet that she can't stick to that her mother places her on. Her mother's like a TV personality. And there is just the saddest moment where Dylan is like, yeah, like my mom says that if I lose 10 pounds at this, you know, weight loss camp, she'll let me get a nose job. And everyone's like, but do you want a nose job? And she says, no, but it's cool that she cares enough to offer me one. And you really realize that even though Dylan is constantly using her proximity to celebrities and her info of celebrity gossip to like grant her power over others. Oh God, she really wants her mother's attention and love. And she thinks the only way that she can get it is by making her proud by losing weight. And that is heart wrenching to me. Or, you know, the fact that, you know, Massey almost like lies about how much she cares about calorie counting and sugar, because at the end you can see her almost with a wink and a nod to Claire say, you know, sugar is in fruit. It's the same amount of calories. Like if I have this hot chocolate, it's basically like eating an apple. <laughs> and you realize that weaponizing weight loss for Massey means something completely different than it means to Dylan. But that, the way she talks, the way that she, you know, denounces certain food groups, it's learned from Kendra, her mother, who, you know, Claire mentions the blocks have nutritionists. The blocks have personal trainers. The blocks are renovating their home gym. This is all like passed down. And then you have Claire who really represents a more healthy attitude towards food, which she fully like attributes to her parents. Like she says, you know, my parents, you know, celebrate every time Ben and Jerry's comes out with a new flavor. My parents would look at me differently if I didn't eat this way. And you really realize that, or at least I think Lisey Harrison is really spelling out that the ways in which these girls feel about their bodies and feel about the control that they exert about their bodies, their body image, their dysmorphia, it is all taught through the environment of OCD, the environment through Westchester County, and the environment through their specific relationships to their parents. And I honestly would even, I would place Alicia under this category because her body, 
I would argue body dysmorphia has nothing to do necessarily with like how many calories she consumes. This isn't, you don't get into this in this book, but there is a book later in the series when Alicia's Spanish cousins come to visit her, Mm. realize that like the sexual objectification of these kids is a familial issue. It's something that like her Spanish family taught her. And you realize that this is just, I mean, it is, it's so, it's almost instructive for how parents should and should not behave with their kids. And I really, oh my God, it like, it screamed out at me when I was reading in a way that it just didn't when I was young. Like it, I didn't process how poignant these points that Lucy Harrison is sort of subtly making are. Yeah, they're all products of their environment as we all are. And I think it is fascinating just like it always is when I come back to these books as an adult for the podcast to see how it works on an adult level and how much more I can see those different levers being pulled from the authorial level. And I, again, I, I really appreciate all of your thoughtful commentary on this book. And you've already said so, so much, and I have a feeling I know which direction you're going to go with this question, but I'm anxious to hear kind of how you capture it. How would you compare your experience of coming to Revenge of the Wannabes and to the first three books in the series more broadly as compared to your memory of these books when you were a teenager? Um, I mean, that's a great question. I, I mean, when I was, when I was in middle school reading these books, I used these almost as like a how-to guide for standing up to bullies and how-to guide for how to fake it until you make it. I was totally a fish out of water. I went to school with a lot of privileged people. And so obviously not to the extent, like this is satirized to the extreme. So not to the extent to which you see Massey, Dylan, and Claire, not Claire, sorry, Massey, Dylan, and Alicia flaunt their wealth. But I, I did encounter a lot of wealth, a lot of privilege, and a lot of cruelty that I wasn't able to color in the shades of racism, xenophobia, classism, until I was much older and had like the language and context for what I was experiencing. I, at at that point in my life, I just thought of mean girls as mean. So reading these books, it gave me sort of like a deeper understanding into what could be going on in the heads of the girls who bullied me. It made me empathetic to people who I thought were mean for mean sake. We haven't just, we barely discussed it, but the comebacks in this book, mm-hmm. the clever language and the way that these girls talk to one another. I used to like write down all of the Massey comebacks as I wanted to have them like in my, you know, back pocket if anyone came at me. And it's funny because like, obviously that's not how people talk in real life. So it wasn't like anyone ever respected me more after I hit them with one of these lines. It made me feel strong. So when I was reading these books, I I thought of them as really, really like, I don't know, they opened up my eyes and taught me a little bit more about like the psyche of Mean Girls. And that was really helpful to me as a very awkward middle schooler that was sort of like desperate to melt into the floorboards 
as an adult, I now have a lot more context for the way that young people acted when I was in middle school. I now am like outside of the New York private school bubble and have been able to have conversations with some of the girls that I went to high school and middle school with about sex, race, privilege. I've been able to have conversations with them about what we think was going on sort of behind the scenes that painted a lot of the um, incidents that happened throughout middle school and sort of like more bring more awareness to why we felt and behaved that way. And I think a lot of it comes down to what was happening at home, the environment, the way children are taught by their parents and power, power dynamics, exactly like these, not to this extreme, but all young friendships are, are essentially um, derived from power dynamics. So revisiting these books as an adult, and especially adult who's written a book herself, yeah, I feel like I, I'm almost looking at them as like historic documents. Like I'm reading them from a really critical lens, mm-hmm. thinking about the ways that they discuss class and privilege and thinking about what they say about um, the ways in which young women especially are disenfranchised and then given power and you know struggle to be able to connect and be vulnerable with each other and the ultimate fear of being alone and being you know not being loved and not being able to forge real connections with people um it's fun for me to reread these and try to figure out like what was going through Lisey's head when she was writing them yeah it i love I love everything that you said this whole time. I really loved what you said just now, just kind of about the shift and reading it as an author yourself. And um, I hope that you come back and maybe we can talk about another book in this series or another book altogether. This has been so fun. And I appreciate, again, the time you took to read the book and to come prepared with so many meaningful things to share. Other than Revenge of the Wannabes, although it sounds like you have been reading a lot of The Click recently, is there anything that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't normally just read the. I, I really love revisiting my favorite YA, so like this was just a treat for me. Um, people are gonna be like, she's insufferable. No, but... definitely not. They're gonna be like, she is so thoughtful and has so many brilliant things to say about a subject that is all too often considered mindless and marginal and this stuff is really important so don't sell yourself short well thank you i have read 138 books this year um i'm trying to hit 150 uh that was my reading goal and i have a lot to recommend um two different readers i am not really sure what your cup of tea is but I think the hype around tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow was really well earned. For me, it was the book of the year. I think Gabrielle Zevin is incredibly talented and it was so refreshing to read a book about the transformative power of friendship through time. And I often wish more people would write platonic friendship novels and discuss the ways in which platonic intimacy 
evolves as we get older and start to understand ourselves more as individuals and not just in the context of the people we choose as family. So I love Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I read a ton of romance. So if there are any romance fans in the audience. a lot of them out there. Okay. I, oh my gosh, I read probably like a, a scary amount of romance this year, but um, I really would recommend um, Honey and Spice, I thought was like a really wonderful contemporary romance novel that for me tonally felt a lot like 100 Other Girls because just of like the, the slang and the pop culture references and the sort of like social commentary, but um, with a really, really wonderful tension and romance and strong female lead. So Honey and Spice is one that I um, wholeheartedly recommend, uh, especially if you're looking to add like newer diverse authors to your slate. My favorite romance debut was uh, Carly Fortune's Every Summer After. Um, I loved that novel so much and a, a big part of the reason I loved it was because of like the adolescence nostalgia and since I just spent 10 years talking about adolescence nostalgia if like any of that appealed to you and you want to feel what it's like to be in middle school again also want like a very rewarding happily ever after and like well-written tension and spice I would definitely give every summer after a shot and Oh gosh, I mean, I could really talk for hours. Like I, I'm reading Legendborn right now. I'm also a fantasy fan. I'm like loving Legendborn. I read so much fantasy this year and all of it was fantastic. Well, I hope you meet your goal. So for context listeners, we're recording this on December 1st, which means Iman has one month to read 12 more books. And by the time this episode drops, you will be able to let us know if you succeeded. Yes, please. Let, like, DM me, check in with me. Okay. And also, like, this would be easier. Listeners, if you want to be friends, why don't you message me and tell me your favorite genre, and then I'll try to recommend Perfect. something in that genre. Because, like, I read across the board uh, based on my mood, and I read a lot. So, um, Since we've already broken the ice, and I've already done the awkward thing of just being like, do you want to be friends? Now everybody can do that. Please. Be my friend. I love making bookish friends specifically. I've made so many like internet bookish friends this year and it's made my life so much like brighter and more colorful. So fun. Well, I will make sure that I include links to your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to your book, A Hundred Other Girls. We've chatted about it a bit throughout this episode, but what I want to tell you because I read it over the summer was that picking up your book, and I know that you've gotten the comparison to Devil Wears Prada, when I read your book, something about your writing style brought me back to like the first time I read The Devil Wears Prada when I was in high school, the first time I read Confessions of a Shopaholic when I was in high school, like the freshness, the brightness of your writing, the specificity of your references and your world building in these contemporary cities that I'm familiar with. Like you managed to turn New York, where I lived for 10 years, into a complete like candy land of color and character and it just made me so happy and it made me wish that I was like sitting crammed between two people on the New York City subway reading it like where it was happening and it also is just like a delightful exploration of 
magazine culture and the transition to digital. And because I have some experience working in that world, I thought that was really well done. But we have some much needed representation in terms of race and sex and gender and sexuality. And it just was a real delight to read. So that's my take on your book. Also, it has one of my favorite covers of the year, and I'm so happy that you have it framed behind you because it just makes me happy to look at. But I'm I'm curious, like, if there's anything specific that you want to share with listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet, what they should know before they pick it up, um, and anything else that you want to share about what you're working on. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, it's amazing to hear that. Um, I think that you might have just described what I was trying to do with the world building around New York better than I ever have um, by calling it a complete Candyland version of New York. I always say that like I wanted to use world building to, to describe New York almost through like a fantastical lens. Like I want yes. to feel um, like a, a new world and a new universe. And I wanted it to feel very, very colorful and painted by the characters that move through it. So that was really well put. So thank you. And I love the comparisons because I always say that this book, the, t- the tone of this book was really written for adults who grew up loving YA and like miss the spark and the fun and the spontaneity and the chaos yeah. of reading a good YA novel. Because I think that often adult literature can be tonally a lot more serious. And the only times that I get that that fun, that fun spark is reading romance. Um, but I think there's room for for it in adult, new adult lit as well. But anyway, <laughs> all that to say uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the book, A Hundred Other Girls, which came out late summer, is my sort of 2022 update on the world of the Devil Wears Prada. Um, but it's told through the lens of marginalized characters who work in the industry. The novel follows Nora, who is a young Middle Eastern American post-grad who is a little bit lost in life. Um, she's tutoring rich Upper East Side kids and crashing on her sister's couch when she gets the opportunity of a lifetime, um, the chance to work for her favorite culture magazine, Vinyl. And the pages of Vinyl basically raised Nora. Um, She is a fanatic. They taught her everything from who to vote for to how to insert a tampon. So when she gets this opportunity, she thinks this is my lucky break. I'm gonna become a writer. But when she arrives, she quickly realizes that all internally is not how it appears externally. And the real crux of this book is a cultural turf war between the old school elitist print team, the type of characters that one might associate with the Miranda Priestleys of the world, even though our magazine is a lot more um, like Gloria Steinem and less Chanel. And um, the new guard woke, but for the wrong reasons, young digital team. And Immediately, Nora gets thrown in the middle of this conflict and both sides try to pressure her to choose. She has to figure out how to be smarter and form her own. Um, So the book explores a lot of themes. Um, I've already talked about the rise of 
digital media, the decline of publishing, identity exploitation, there's a like spicy workplace romance, there's a really wonderful sister relationship. But I like to think of this as like a real coming of age book for women in their early 20s that will resonate with anyone who's ever had an experience with a toxic workplace, who's had a dream job that maybe didn't meet that reality. And also like, I always talk about it in really serious terms, but it's a really fun read. It's a fun, quick read. It is. You see, it's dramatic, it's chaotic. And I think that beneath all those layers of like fun, organized chaos, there is um, a lot of surprising insight as well, so. I agree. And I want to congratulate you on all the success you've had with the book. It's well-deserved. And listeners, if you haven't read it, go read it. And Iman, I'm just so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.